Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now on to the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Jane's World of Intelligence. Unusually, just the two of us, Sean. Hello, Sean. Hi, Harry. Good to be back. Good to be back. So, Sean, 2023, 20 episodes, multiple guests. Today, just the two of us, as I've said. As we did last year, I think it would be quite good for the two of us to go through all the things we discussed and draw out, I don't know, four or five of the key takeaways that we've learned from all the various expert guests and discussions we've had. Um, I'm absolutely certain we could probably spend the next three or four hours covering it all, but let's try and keep it relatively brief. Um, of the things that we've discussed, let's try and find, as I've said at the moment ago, four, five topics we really want the audience to uh, to highlight. And as we do so, we'll be saying thank you in an indirect way to some of the guests that have been on as well. So where do you want to start? What are the big takeaways for you, Sean? So I think first up to say that, you know, uh, having done the the uh, research on terms of what we covered, we covered a huge amount of ground and it's going to sure. be quite challenging to come up with four or five. And we've been <laughs> really lucky to have some great guests. So, um, you know, within that context, I'm sure there will be people we miss out. But, uh, you know, I think just just the literally the, the richness that we've got, with it, it, that's going to make that necessary. Unless Absolutely. And how many times how many times this year and, and previously have we said at the end of every podcast, we really need to come back to that? Um, Indeed. And maybe maybe at the end of this one, we'll talk about the ones we are going to come back to uh, later this year. Back to you, Sean. Yeah, sure. So uh, if you recall, I think it was two years ago that we actually came up with the term the coming of age of open source intelligence. And I think mm. at that stage, we were looking at the fundamentals, foundational level in terms of how it was being applied and how right. rich it was, it was becoming. But, uh, you know, I've got to say that, you know, since that time and last year in particular, I think some of the episodes we covered just demonstrate that we've gone to the next level in terms of applications and in terms of the coming of age. So I think my first point would be that while that foundational level of intelligence is so important and critical, I think the ability now for the responsible open source intelligence community to actually discuss and provide value on current intelligence and yes. even emerging crisis that happen um at speed and with accuracy i think it's really really impressive actually and if you look at thinking back to um what we did in sudan you know we were yeah. slightly ahead of the game in terms of the reporting on that um and, and in a in a very um unsure environment which there was lots and lots of conflicting information but and and not being a particularly um big collection um opportunity we were able to get into granularity particularly quickly on that one and that would that was Sudan so that was one that really brought yeah I think I think that's right if you think about um as you were just saying John in your in your introduction there we've often talked about open source intelligence as being that foundational layer the the, the gap fill to our understanding of a situation or a particular piece of equipment or whatever it might be what you're saying is using Sudan as an example actually the open source environment is increasingly relevant and useful to the current intelligence understanding, understanding what's happening right now, getting those insights and doing it at speed. I think that alongside what we did with um, with uh, Lewis and Jake Shristi yeah. around Iran as well, there is an underlying sort of indicators and warnings piece that came out of that podcast back in March where we had the 
conversation about what we can see through open sources in a very closed environment, actually, with very limited collect, as you were just saying about Sudan, limited collect, but still able to derive insights that have current and potentially predictive um, qualities as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll go even further, actually, and, and say that the the piece on Gaza, if you recall, that where you know everybody woke up to what on earth happened there, yeah. and two of our very proactive and and you know extreme professional analysts were way ahead of the game. They were reporting stuff that that was had not yet been valid, validated and verified. That I, from what I understand, was extremely useful in triaging for the intelligence community to say, right, you know, what have we got so far? Oh, here's yeah. some stuff done. Now, there's a really important point, and I guess this thread goes through it all. You can only do that if you're looking at something in advance, in advance, and that you've got that baseline understanding to say. What has changed? What is different? What are we looking at here? You can't just come from scratch with a blank slate right. of paper and say, right, what's happening? Right. So it's the combination of that foundational long look that allows you to identify what's relevant and particularly important in the current look that's going on. I do remember that conversation we had with uh, Amal and Lewis around the emerging situation in Gaza, as it was at the time. Um, we had had the fortune, had we not, that Amal had just come out of that, that locale and had some direct insights from very, very recent times. There's a bit of luck there, so that that's not uh, deny that. But at the same time, because he had been studying that part of the world so, so long, he was able to identify the key aspects for the current situation that, as you say, allows us to triage uh, what's going on and where we need to be looking. But I think there's also um, then this, this question mark, isn't there, about if we can look at open source intelligence as being that foundational layer, and now we're increasingly seeing with the coming of age of the capability, the more current. This predictive piece is probably a bit we should come back to in the future, but looking looking forward into what open sources might be telling us might be coming around the corner. That absolutely requires us to combine current historical foundational intelligence with tradecraft to look forward. But I think that's one of those areas we might want to look at in the in the future undoubtedly and and just to underscore that actually you know talking to some of my um community friends in the us in particular it is going to be the next big thing you I mean i you you know i've always said the nirvana is predictive intelligence sure. um, which is always the the most tricky by obviously and there's so many things that could happen but i think getting into that world of okay, these are the feasible um, things that might happen. This is what we're predicting. Not all of them will come true, but at least if you're looking ahead, you've got a chance of either reacting when something does happen or even um, stopping something from happening by saying, this part of the world because something could happen. Yeah, and I remember the conversation we had with uh, Matt and Lewis from Jones about Haiti, and we talked about how the combination of commercial and potentially government um, agencies working together to look at what is on a global scale a relatively low priority for some parts of the world for sure but the ability for the commercial world to work in partnership with the government agencies allows us to look at that and in that particular case again it was that predictive intelligence element that came through as i recall that indicated a warnings piece that uh, we talked about then back in uh, the autumn of of 2023 well look yeah, one of the things that uh, just while you talk about haiti um slightly yeah. slightly aside but that was a really interesting one for me because it talked about sub-state activity 
and yes. the granularity and the detail you need to go into that is, is quite quite extraordinary i'm not saying that you don't for other things but to understand what is an incredibly complex complex but that's right i remember you know, that now non-traditional yeah. intelligence uh yeah. challenge and yet we were still able to to address that in a fairly comprehensive way so maybe that's another element that we should look at in the future in terms of you know non-state you know we've talked about non-traditional threats but you know whether that is people smuggling whether that is organized crime etc you know there is there is some real real potential there i think i remember the don't remember the number but i do remember the um point that matt and lewis were making about the incredible number of diverse sub-state non-state actors that were operating in that country and as you say an, an ability in the open source environment to plunder the various open sources to get an understanding of those multiple groups and uh, actors was a, was a key piece probably of the foundational intelligence an organization could get if they were going to go into Haiti, for example, as a non-state, as a uh, non-government organization, for example, there would be all kinds of support provided there. Throughout all of this, one of the things that certainly came out, though, was the need for us to engage with technology. We heard on a number of occasions how technology was becoming not a nice to have it's an absolutely central part of dealing with the information environment that we we live in and i do remember the um, conversation we had with keith keith deer around the use of uh, ai in support of the open source as well as of course other intelligence work i think for me one of the things that came through there wasn't just the fact that these advanced technologies are able to help us in terms of the collect and to some extent the collate the ability to deal with that at scale and at, and at great speed of course but also that as, as i recall we we looked at it as being a necessary tool but not a not a sufficient tool it wasn't one of those things that we decided ai was going to answer all of our questions and that we needed just to sit back and let the black box do its thing wait for the answers and it would provide us the answers it was very clear to me from that conversation as well as others we had with the people like randy randy nixon um, from cia that this blend of technology with tradecraft good judgment etc was the was the key um if you remember with keith in particular um he talked about that it almost being negligent if you didn't use these technologies to do the collect and that that mundane automated collect piece was really where AI was really still very well, not still is very, very much uh, in charge, if you like, because it can do it at scale and at speed. But the human very much still needed to be there at the other end of that uh, intelligence cycle, which was and the more theoretical and conceptual part of the process, the judgment and analysis. Yeah, I thought I thought the Keith Deer one was was excellent. From it was very balanced. I think it recognised that you know everybody talks about AI. If, if you don't put AI in a conversation now, you know you can be clearly <laughs> not, not part yeah. of the conversation anymore. But but you know, and then you get the sensational side, like we're all going to get killed by robots and the world's going to get taken over, etc. But I thought that gave a far more balanced uh, view on you know it's a tool, use it as a tool, and in. Yes, of course, it's got to be, you've got to be, you know, have ethical AI and we've got to make sure that it's still its own control. But as you said, you know, everything from just sorting the huge amounts of data out there right. as a tool for the analyst to make them better up to sort of the more more right hands of the spectrum where they are helping you join the dots together. But, you know, I still and many people have said this, I, I think, as well. Like, you know, I still say that you cannot right now anyway, and maybe not for some significant amount of time, replicate yeah. the cognitive processes of a human being 
and of course that's that is partly the the analysis and partly the tradecraft you know and 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 neil talked about human machine teaming and the, you know it was absolutely yeah. inevitable you had to use yeah. it but it, yeah. within the context of this is how to help an a, an analyst do their job and then segueing again you know there's the ethical element which you know how yeah. ethical can ai be you know it's garbage in garbage out so yeah. at the end yeah. of the day yes of course there is you know uh, developmental ai and unexplainable ai etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know there's still an ethical approach which still means that you've got to have that human in the loop for now at least um anyway to say right what is it we're trying to achieve here are we being rational and what are the consequences and you know ai is not yet there in my humble opinion certainly not in the mainstream that can actually make that sort of judgment yeah i do remember with uh, the conversation with neil uh, which was as i remember back in may june time last year um there was a big part of what he was saying not of course just about tradecraft because that was the center of the of the episode but also on this uh, ethics of the intelligence analysis as, as you just touched upon there and that tradecraft is an, an evolving thing of course and that with the arrival of advanced technologies like um, ai machine learning etc that those tactics those techniques that we're using in the intelligence cycle needed to to evolve and that that evolution was inevitable i think what I also got from that conversation is that the ability to innovate and evolve is an inevitability. It has to be done. But the ability to supervise that and ensure that the quality remains high, that's the bit that we're still not very clear about. We're not not absolutely certain how we're going to do it. How do we actually govern what the AI is doing inside the black box was a point that was raised at the time. How do you actually drive that machine in the direction you want it to go rather than the one it's deciding to go for itself? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, that was all brought together by what we call the super podcast with three excellent people, you know, Emily, yeah. Amy, um, Clara, and our own Alison as well, just as that sort of brought together the technical with the ethical and even the empathetic, which, as you know, was not a word I knew, knew before then and still struggling <laughs> with, but, uh, but getting there slowly. But I mean, that was that was a fascinating discussion about how you've got to weave them all together. That's right. I mean, we had those conversations, didn't we, right at the beginning of the year. We had um, Dr. Claire York in, who brought the word empathy into your lexicon, Sean, as I recall. And yes. uh, we talked about how empathy was a key part of the intelligence process. And then, as you say, we then rolled that into the so-called super podcast where we had uh, Emily, we had Claire, we had Amy, and we also had Alison, as you said, where we brought together that mixture of ethics empathy technology and culture which was uh, a fascinating discussion and and as you say it certainly brought to mind things that i hadn't really considered before but one of the things that we definitely took away from that conversation is what empathy might actually mean in intelligence terms if you remember with uh, with claire we talked about the fact that when you have empathy you might understand at the state level how that state conceptualizes itself, how it derives meaning, you know, what they talk about when they talk about their past and why that's important to them. It's a way of looking at a situation, not just through cultural lenses, but also through a more human understanding of why they might be feeling the way they do, they act the way they do, uh, as difficult as that might be, to really begin to understand what you need to do in response or alongside them. So that empathy piece came through. Now, I think at the time you were talking about the fact that empathy 
was a function of the art of intelligence within that tradecraft piece that, of course, we talk about so often. And that it's not just something you add on. It's it's something that's a constant. It's always in the middle of the process. But I think what we talk we took away, Sean, if I remember, is that you and I hadn't really thought about it. It's quite likely others hadn't thought about it in the way Claire had presented it. And that there was a d- distinct need for us to really think about the process of including some sort of empathic view and ensuring that that mindset we have is taking into consideration other people's perspectives. Yeah, and it is another tool for the analyst in terms of their their tradecraft is, you know, and 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 maybe, you know, we don't want to overblow this because the analyst does try to think in yes. terms of, okay, you know, call it red teaming if you want. Okay, what is, why is a certain individual, Putin or whoever is thinking the way he is and therefore acting as he is? So I think we've always done it in a way, but not in as much as a, of a conscious way. And, you know, not weaved in, in 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 maybe a formal process. But as you say, you can't just say, right, you know, tick this box. I've got my uh, my assured data. You know, I've got the analytical techniques here right now. Let's let's apply empathy. It can't work like that. It's far more cognitive. Yeah, I suppose it's one of those things that when we talk about wanting to address potential unconscious bias. If you don't ask yourself that question about. Why somebody or something is operating the way it is then you're potentially going to miss the point. You're going to completely react in the wrong way. And I suppose that's the point, isn't it, Sean, that it's not just about the quality of your analysis, it's the breadth and depth of your analysis that you've done and that you've potentially introduced biases by your own culture, education, um, and, and that if you're not looking at it through other lenses, using the word empathy again, you could be missing the point. You could be completely misinterpreting the situation. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is that's actually quite a neat segue into my other really big takeaway and which I know we're going to have to cover again. We will and we are planning to cover again is misinformation, disinformation. Yes. I mean, talking about the unconscious bias. And again, maybe it's a bit unfair, but I still go back to the Al-Akhli hospital explosion where, you know, yeah. an individual from the BBC, you know, made two and two equals seven straight away, probably because of their unconscious bias maybe previous experiences where you know attacks had happened and and i would suggest that you know having probably been embedded within gaza for a while you have that empathy with mm-hmm. you know the organization that you're there because they're not all murderous um, terrorists immediately that unconscious bias when oh they've been attacked at a hospital now very clearly it didn't take as long as as experts to go there is no way that that was a 500 pound, 1,000 pound, 2,000 pound bomb that went off there. Mm-hmm. So the facts very quickly, but the reporting was so instant and so quick that they just got it wrong. Now, I guess if you, guess if you lived in, if you lived the experience of Gaza and you have a variety of ordnance falling from the sky and creating damage, it wouldn't be hard, would it, to take a step no. from an explosion okay. over by that hospital must have been caused by some air delivered audience or artillery it wouldn't be hard to make that step i think the point you're making though is even though you are exposed to that conditioning even though you might actually be in the middle of all of it reporting from close quarters you need to step back and just take a breath before you uh, report that the israelis had dropped an air delivered or artillery delivered ordinance on a hospital because that is not what it turned out to have been indeed Talking about um, mis- and disinformation, though, um, we spoke to Di Cook, didn't we, back in the early part of last year, who, as I recall, we, we focused largely 
on deepfakes, the sort of imagery and video technologies that are available. For me, the big takeaway in that conversation was that in the so-called post-truth world, where many of us still believe we can see through falsehoods, we can see through um, the myths and disinformation that's around there. The impression I got from Claire was that, sorry, from Di, was that that actually is not the case. We're not very good at all at spotting fakes, particularly in the video and imagery world. She talked about artificial intelligence created deep fakes that were so good, currently the only way of really detecting them reliably as being fakes was to use other AIs. You end up with this war of AI going on in the deep fake arena, which for me, the big takeaway there was we're not as good as we think we are as humans at spotting deep fakes in the in the video and imagery world. Yeah, that was quite scary, actually. I mean, because the, the, she's doing her PhD research, she might have actually finished it now, actually. But, mm, you know, yeah. it was it was obvious that I think it was more than 50 percent um, of the deep fakes that were shown to experts were not identified as deep fakes. Right. Um, and, and that should worry us. Um, I mean, it creates issues for open source intelligence, but it also creates opportunities, I think, because there's a real key role for open source intelligence there. And, I, and I've thought about this a lot more and I know we're going to cover it. We have to because it's prevalent in everything that we do now misinformation and disinformation you know yeah. um but but i guess context is one of one of the things that, that that you need to to help you understand that so the you know the classic one that everybody talks about in terms of the pope in a puffer jacket you know i mean clearly the pope is not going to wear a puffer jacket or, or is that just my perception i don't know but you know when you see things like they go that can't be right you know when it becomes more difficult and there's been some you know some ones with with um donald trump you go actually that could be realistic but is it is it deep fake is it is it real yeah, um yeah. you know there, there's, there's an example which i don't i don't know if we covered before but there was a a chap in germany i think it was who took a load of mobile phones as an experiment he put them in a little hand cart put them all on and walked up a uh, street in one of the one of the big cities in germany and it may have been Google Maps, it may have been something else, but very quickly it'd be like avoid this place because there's a huge traffic jam, because the the data <laughs> looked at what was transmitting and the fact that the phones were going really really slowly and therefore there must be a, a traffic jam or an accident there. I now see. that I mean just as an experiment, but that that could have been quite easily been disinf well it was disinformation yeah, yeah, it was. to uh, to to change um patterns of behavior but then i guess that that example uh which i hadn't heard before that actually brings to mind for me that so what do you do about it i mean how would you possibly counter a guy walking down the road with a trolley load of mobile phones making all the systems think there's a traffic jam i mean i i don't know there, there must be an answer to that i'm sure i don't know what it is but well the answer the answer is and, and it's the first time i've used the word tradecraft so you know when you see something you think all oh, right what's happening there there will be you know cctv cameras there will be eyewitnesses right. yeah there okay will be people yeah. there that say you know this is not happening um of course you know, so straight, straight, straight to, to multi-source Straight to multi-source, triangulate, get get a different perspective. Is there a traffic jam there? Yeah, of course. CCTV, just pop it up and say, there's a guy with a trolley, but can't see any traffic. And that would have answered the question. He must have a few telephones in his back pocket. Yeah, interesting. I think of all the topics, um, and we'll come on to some other ideas for the coming year, of all the topics, Sean, we're going to have to come back to this miss and disinformation 
um, yeah. piece. We, with Dai, we certainly looked at one aspect of it, which was fascinating, albeit worrying. But I do think we should come back and look at that in a slightly broader context, because if we believe open source is becoming a very powerful current and possibly predictive intelligence source, well, it is unquestionable that it's got to be reliable. And if it's full of missing disinformation, we need to know how to deal with it. It's got to be one of those things that we've got to get our head around is how do we actually deal with it in the open source environment? I think it's probably true to say that it's going to be less of a problem in the closed information environment because you have more control over what it is that your sensors are seeing and doing. I, I do stress probably less of a, a problem. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of examples where you could can, you could refute that. But in the open source, it's the wild west. Everybody can say everything. And as, as somebody said a while ago, everybody lies. So if you've got all the information out there and it's all mostly wrong, how do you weed out the good stuff from the bad stuff, the wheat from the chaff, so to speak? Yeah, oh. I, I, I agree with that. And, and and this is where responsible open source intelligence does play its part, you know, and the tradecraft does come in. I mean, my, one of my real concerns at the moment is the Wild West, as you say, of social media, but also mainstream media. You know, everything is instant sound bites now and, and they do get it wrong. You know, I'd like to think that some of the responsible mainstream media just gets it wrong, but I'm not sure anymore. So, you know, and then there's that blurring area between what is deliberate disinformation what is yeah. a, a unconscious or conscious bias and what is partial truth? Now, you know, the, the, as I said, the, the, there is a role to be playing for for mainstream media organisations, but I'm not sure they're playing it certainly in, in the way that they should be. And that's yeah. where, you know, open source intelligence organisations that can demonstrate their process, that can demonstrate their sources, that do that correlation, that triangulation go, this is the ground truth, not my truth or your truth, but the truth. Yeah. And, and that's and, really important going forward. And I do remember from um, Warren, Warren Strobel from the Wall Street Journal, who was yeah. with us earlier last year, he talked about, I seem to recall, he talked about the fact that 90, 85, 90% of what government intelligence analysts could see in their closed environment he believed he could see from the open source environment as a responsible journalist. Yeah. If that's true, and I'm not going to disagree or, or dispute that, if I take that at face value, then the responsibility of the Wall Street Journal and other media analysts is going to need to be very, very clearly thinking about the impact of what they're saying, trying to be as accurate as possible for fear that they're actually creating more problems than they're solving by the reporting they're doing. Because if we're not careful, they become the biggest source of mis or at worst disinformation, particularly if they're now able to see almost 90%, he was saying, 90, 90% of yeah, what it is yeah. an analyst could see inside an agency. Just moving on from that then, just to finish off, because I've just touched on the Wall Street Journal, it's what's reminded me of it. One of the topics that we came up with in our conversation with uh, Randy Nixon from CIA, Bob Ashley, ex of DIA, of course, was this partnership between the government organizations and the commercial providers. If you remember, we talked about that becoming a necessity that the government organizations are going to have to start thinking. Uh, to be fair, I think they are starting to think about it. It's not like it's a brand new topic for them, but really understanding how do we bring together the classified and the unclassified community to uh, mutual benefit and better understanding. 
Yeah, and this this is a really big one for me, and and I'm sure you're almost as frustrated as I am, having seen things from the the other end of the telescope, where you know you don't trust industry and thinking, well, no, everything has to be done internally, and I can develop this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, the fact is that we none of us can do it on our own. There are there are elements both of the government and non-government, commercial and non-commercial, that have to work together. And the frustration I has is is that while discussions are definitely going on and we've seen them progress and sure. you know Randy has been great in in that respect as have others, but you know that conversation is not yet at a at a stage sophisticated level of sophistication where okay what are we going to do about it how does it look you know is there going to be a for example, a US open source intelligence agency. If so, are they going to do everything themselves? How do you bring the commercial sector in? There are so many elements to that, everything from individual bias. And sadly, you know, in our world, individuals still really matter. If somebody in an organization that's in the right level just goes, you know what, I don't want to do this, or I don't understand the need for it, then it tends not to happen. Yeah. So you, you need for me an enterprise level. But an enterprise level of engagement that says, right, we're committed to this. And by the way, never mind all the you know policies and, and the funding challenges and everything else that we've got to deal with. We need to make this happen. And let's have meaningful discussions and actually come up with a plan that delivers mm. something. I mean, you and I have both been in discussions with government uh, organizations where you know you have a great discussion and afterwards all of a sudden nothing happens and yeah. it's not because necessarily because people don't want it to happen it might be budgetary constraints it might be just you know the tyranny of the inbox as i call it that things don't progress but mm. we're going to have to do this because there's so many bad things happening in the world now you know if you look at the threats that we're emerging threats and everything else there is there is a huge amount of of global insecurity from every perspective that we talked about we have to do this together and we have to do it in a clever way I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, I remember uh, the conversation we had with uh, Robert Cardillo, looking principally at the imagery intelligence, geospatial intelligence world, and we touched on this topic about the commercial capabilities of which there are, of course, many. Go back, I don't know, 10, 15 years, how many satellites were owned by commercial organizations that are readily available? Look at it now, with your credit card in one hand and imagery in the other hand sort of thing. But he talked about there needs to be a line that you don't cross. You know, he, he talked about the fact that eventually governments do need to reserve the ability to look after their own national security interests and that that could not be relied upon entirely in the civil and commercial sector. So I think when you blend those two topics, those two points together, you end up with this absolute necessity for a combination, a, co a collaboration between the commercial and the government but at the same time, a recognition that there are some things that the commercial environment is really good at and can do for and with the government. But eventually there will come a time when the government's got to do things for itself, for its national security requirements. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. And as you know, I've always been very, very careful to make the point that I don't think that open source intelligence can replace the intelligence community and all the other good stuff. But it does have an important role in the heavy lifting and, you know, the data and, and some of the analysis as well. But but it's got to be a true, uh, you know, use the I word for a change, integration, sure. where you know, you're taking, you're reversing the 80-20, it's well since I've said that actually, where 80% of the really good stuff was coming from exquisite sources and 20% was, you know, sprinkled on top, if you like, from open source. It, it, that is that is reversing, um, particularly in the imagery yeah. world, as, as Robert Certainly said, where world. some of the capabilities yeah. are, are, are really good out there in the commercial world.
Okay, so 20 episodes, four or five big takeaways. So we've talked about the, the foundational and importance of open source intelligence becoming increasingly centered around current intelligence, potentially even becoming predictive. We've discussed the value and role of artificial intelligence and other advanced technologies and the balance between the ability for those black boxes to do what they're good at versus the human. Um, we've introduced the idea of the ethical and the em empathy aspects of intelligence, which is really just about being much more explicit about those things rather than it being an inbuilt thing. We actually consciously think about it. Really important in the myths and disinformation post-truth world. Um, we've recognized, I think, in some of those conversations we've had before and in this sum up, that there are some things the human can't do as well as we would like to believe we can, that we may have to rely upon the artificial intelligence and other advanced technology. And then this combination, as we just finished off there, talking about the, the importance of that link between commercial and government agencies, albeit there may be some limits. So I think those are really crisp, very valuable takeaways from the podcast episodes for this year, Sean. What have we not done enough of? What, what, should, we look, what should we be looking at going forward? Rather than talking about the one takeaway for this particular episode, what are the two or three things we should look at for the coming year? Uh, we, we've, we've highlighted a couple of them already. We've, we've got to get more into the app, practical applications for misinformation, disinformation. Absolutely. I think yeah. for me, the big one is, and it's being discussed a lot now, is the the broad sunlit uplands, if you like, of intelligence. And that's predictive analysis. Predictive. You know, yeah. Being able to forecast, if you call it indications and warnings, but it's more than that. It's, it's you know, strategically foresight to say, what, what are the areas in this world that we keep need to keep an eye on to see are there going to be emerging problems or are they there? We're just not looking at them. And, you know, yeah. there are certain hotspots in the world where we may not be as focused as, as we could be. Um, you know, the Balkans is one area, for example. Sure. Libya yeah. could uh, implode this year. You know, there's the ongoing crisis, obviously, in, in Gaza and the, the opportunity for contagion, as I call it, around that area. Obviously, we've got to keep an eye on, on China and see what their intent is. Um, so trying to project ahead and maybe even stop crisis before they happen. Now, that is incredibly challenging. It always has been for the intelligence community as, sure. a, as a whole. But I think it's it's as applicable and as challenging for the open source community. You know, I've been looking a lot in the terms of the factors recently that that um, that led to the Arab Spring or at least mm -hmm. triggered it. Um, been quite a lot of that. And actually, worryingly, you see a lot of the same factors now. Sure. In sure. terms of, you know, um, the demographics, in terms of things like drought and things like wheat prices going through the roof. Now, it is a different time. So I'm not I'm not predicting that there will be another Arab Spring, but that, that there is potential for some some areas to see increased unrest, put it that way. So okay. and that could have been predicted had we been looking at the right things at the right time. So, so that sort of some thing, predictive uh, analysis. Let's get our crystal balls out and um, stare into them to find out what the year ahead might hold. You mentioned mis and disinformation. I agree. We should probably will always come back to that. I suspect that will drag us back into AI. Yes. But as it, as it does so, let's start looking at what are the practical applications of AI more broadly. We talked about videos and imagery in the mis and disinformation. We brought we'll, we'll broaden that out to something slightly more generic, slightly more wide perspective. Similarly with AI, we talked about the importance of AI in the intelligence cycle. 
Let's now start looking at that more specific, more broadly into the defense environment. What are the applications of AI? And one thing that we sort of touched on with the relationship between government and commercial organizations, and then between government non-traditional partners, is the sharing of intelligence. Um, we've, we, I think we've obliquely touched on intelligence sharing, but I'm sure that recent conflicts, ongoing conflicts in Ukraine and probably other parts of the world are really testing some of those security officers who are driving very hard to say, you know, no foreign, you can't share this with anybody. Well, actually, I do need to share. I do need to share because that non-traditional partner needs to know the following three things because they're part of our coalition. That's a genuinely big problem, but it's probably bigger than that. So let's look at um, that for me, Sean. I think of the ones we talked about, predictive analysis, yes, AI, of course, mis- and disinformation, it'll be ongoing. But I think as well, intelligence sharing, we should try and bring that in as well. What do you think? Yeah, it's a very good point. And as you know, it's very close to my heart. And, and I think most most podcasts we've actually touched on it, but um, you'll be pleased to know that I do have a, a guest in mind that is very used to oh, very uh, good. intelligence. So uh, look forward to that in uh, in hopefully the coming month, actually. But, and you was, know, was that, sharing cool. is, Wasn't that also your role at the DIA when you were there? Yeah, as in, indeed. Right. Indeed. You know, my, my, one of my main roles was to try and inculcate increased sharing within the Five Eyes community, right. um, which was a, a an interesting challenge in itself. We made we made headway. Uh, still a long way to go. Well, what we'll do then is I'll, I'll light the touch paper between you and the guest and uh, sit back and uh, just listen. All right. Well, look, I think we've got four or five topics there which we've drawn out from this last year. We've done it over 20 episodes. Let's see what FY24, the whole year ahead of us, brings. I think the four topics we talked about sound like good ones to start with, but I think I should finish by doing two things. First of all, thanking you, Sean, as ever, for the huge amount of effort and work you put in preparing these podcasts, because you do, you do most of the heavy lifting on that front, and I am very grateful. But secondly, but by no means least, I would really like to thank our many guests we've had this year. We've had some outstanding guests through the year, and if we haven't mentioned you by name, and you know who you are if you listen to this episode, thank you very much. I am very grateful for the effort and time you put in with these podcasts. They've been great fun to do. I've learned huge amounts. I continue to learn a load. So thank you to you, Sean. Thank you, the guests. And of course, thank you to the listeners who've come back and listened to you and I droning on. <laughs> Indeed. No, it's been my pleasure. I, re I really enjoy these. We get a lot out of them and, and hopefully so does the audience. And, uh, and yes, that thanks very much for the for fantastic guests we've had you know university they've been excellent but i agree the, the very last point is the the listenership the i'm i'm staggered at the breadth and depth of of people that actually take the time to listen to our podcasts and as ever and i know you're going to say it as well but you know if there's anything that you think we should have covered better or haven't covered at all or would just like to hear about then you know do 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 drop us a line and uh, and we'll have a look at it Absolutely. And I do think we should start going out to some of those locations we've discovered are listening to us, particularly in the Canary Islands. I think we should need to do a podcast recording Definitely. in the Canary Islands just for fun, or if not that, the Caribbean, which are also big listeners of ours. So without further ado, Sean, thank you for everything we've done together to, in FY23, in the year of 2023. Let's see what FY24, 2024 brings. Thanks, Sean. Absolutely. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. 
so you'll never miss an episode. 